0: Hi, I'm Rich Wynn.
1: And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the, the PropTech, PropTech growth, growth Podcast.
0: Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business.
1: I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy.
0: I'm Rich from Rich Wynn Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales, and process, helping fintechs and proptech companies to grow.
1: What is pitch perfect prop tech now that's a good question yeah. pitch perfect prop tech is all about your value proposition it doesn't matter how great your solution is if you're not speaking to your customers needs it'll fall flat in order to have a commercially viable business that here don't take my word for it
2: <laughs> i wasn't expecting all of this that's brilliant really exciting <laughs> that's gone quick. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> well, we've been trying to do stuff internally, but none of us put together like what you've taken us through. And that's where I think the difference is.
0: It does just make you think slightly outside the box, which is good. It's really quite thought-provoking, and the outputs from it will be invaluable.
1: Sign up today for Pitch Perfect Tech. Visit my website, rebecca-nixon.com or search for the Portable Tech CMO. See you there. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Dominic. I think that most of our listeners will be familiar with you. But just in case there are a few that are, not would you mind just really quickly introducing yourself?
2: Thank you, Rebecca. My name is Dominic Grace. I was at Savills for 37 years. I headed up their London residential development team and I've been a lone wolf consultant for about the last 18 months or so, very much keeping one foot in the old camp being residential development and development companies and investment as well. And then the other foot, more tech in an evolution camp where I'm helping those businesses navigate their way around the, the dinosaur infested industry that is the real estate world.
1: That's great. Thank you. And you obviously know who Rich is, my co-host. So I won't reintroduce him, but we'd really love to talk to you about having a foot in each camp. We both come from a mixed tech background and coming into prop tech is, to be frank, obviously, we're going to be very honest, tends to be a little bit behind the curve. What do you think is the key to successfully getting the property space past that and into the modern sphere when we're talking about technology solutions?
2: I've probably already been alienating some people by making the very frequently made observation about property industry having some dinosaur tendencies and I would stand by that and I think there's plenty of evidence for that. Not to say though that there are plenty of opportunities for technology to be brought to bear and perhaps with what's going on right now some of the big challenges certainly in the residential space truthfully in all spaces it doesn't matter what sector you're in you're facing some big challenges now and one of the questions I suppose is will the industry do what it's done in the past when times are bad hunker down, batten down the hatches, wait for the sun to come out, undo the hatches, come out, just do everything they did before, or are there some more fundamental issues in the market, mean that those that think they're going to do that, when they open the hatches, find a rather different climate, and those that perhaps have used the time to think about how they might do things better, more efficiently, et cetera. Not all of that's around technology, I grant you, but my hope is, and maybe we're having a chat and most of the audience listening seeing this, will have a leaning towards big being open-minded to technology. But as to what the biggest challenges are, the biggest challenges are the industry is very deeply entrenched with the way it's done things in the past. And let's face it, lots of people have made lots of money doing it the old way. I think quite a few technology in businesses fail to recognize that there's no silver bullets here. And you've got to take the industry with you as well. You can't just get in front of someone and say, you need to abandon everything you've ever done and adopt whatever it is you're trying to sell. That's the extreme case, but absolutely some people do try and sell that way, not very successfully. So the biggest challenge is, yeah, just get the audience, the industry, to at least be interested in what you're doing. And then another big challenge, maybe we might chat about this, is the whole sort of integration of whatever it is you're selling into their existing system. So what I would call a soft landing. So how easy is it to adopt by whoever you're looking to sell into? happy to expand on either I think it's a really good
0: point and again both Rebecca and myself having worked in fintech and obviously had a little fintech company for a while which is more in the mortgage sphere it took a while for mortgages and it's still taking a little bit for them to move forward it's that tipping point isn't it and I think from what I've seen from prop tech and I know the property industry a bit as well it's two or three years behind fintech and thinking about it today and some of the people that we've spoken to over the past couple of weeks I think it's probably a little bit more because the uptake now is you need technology in order to be able to do what you've always done, but it's just going to be either more efficient or work better. However you want to do it. And there's no disruptor that can come into this market and say, you've got to forget everything that you've done. This technology is going to change over because it just won't happen. The same, you have still got your one man -man mortgage brokers who have got 30 K net profit and that sees them good for the year, then they'll retire and sell a back book for. 50 grand or whatever, and they're happy with that. There's still going to be those people. I think the majority at some point are going to have to move towards technology or they are going to not die, but they're going to be very small numbers. And so I think it'd be really interesting to hear from you. When do you think that might be? When do you think we
2: are going to get the adoption? I think, notwithstanding the fact that what's happening in the market now If one gets very melodramatic, one might liken it to the sort of meteorite strike in the Yucatan Peninsula was it 65 million years ago that wiped the big dinosaurs out. I don't think that's valid. But I do think what's going on right now is there's a confluence of really tough things sitting in the market now around money, the market demand, all post-COVID world, the post-Brexit world stuff that does point towards... Perhaps as looking back in X years' time. It's going to be difficult for me to give you an answer to that question, Richard, but I do think now is quite sort of a pivot point, potentially, hopefully. But it's going to take time, and I suppose it's a rather hackneyed old thing to cite the Bill Gates observation that everyone overestimates what will happen in three years, underestimates what will happen in 10. Well, I think that's probably quite applicable to where we are now, actually. Yeah,
1: I think you're right. I think so too. And I think people have been talking about change and evolution for a long time, and people are very quick to compare the property sector to the financial sector. But there have been huge regulatory pressures on the financial sector to change. And if there aren't those pressures on the property sector, then what incentive is there to change? Like you say, these people have been very successful at making lots of money for a long time doing what they've always done. Why change? And I think. What's coming out of a lot of our conversations with people is the need for a better customer experience and actually being customer obsessed and focused on the needs of the end user. So, when you're selling prop tech to somebody, you're selling something to help their customers, not always to help them. People seem very focused on selling efficiency to an agent or a landlord, that perhaps what they need to be selling is. The customer centricity in that's being expected at the end of the day by the person who is using that service. What do you think of that kind of pivot in messaging that seems to be happening?
2: I think it's good. And I, I think part of this confluence of pressures, particularly the sales market now, means that everyone's going to have to find common be you an estate agent or developer to find those fewer buyers. So you're going to need to really love for your customers in a way that hasn't happened so much in the house building industry ever. It could be that's one of those pivot points. I think you're right to highlight this, Rebecca, because we all know that in the wider retail stroke consumer world, the consumer is feeling much more empowered now, expects more choice, is less tolerant of ropey service, will go on to social media, expect it immediate refund or replacement or whatever. The world is really moving on now. It's extraordinary how, in setting the new build, how a lot of the whole house building industry has got away with the bar being set very low when it comes to the service. That's one of the opportunities, perhaps, that some new players or some enlightened existing players might want to embrace. That's
1: great. I'd really love to know, for the sake of our audience, because I know that you talk to a lot of prop tech founders and you work with a lot of startups, in your opinion, what are the keys to growing a successful prop tech business? Because ultimately, we're here to talk about growing prop tech and scaling successfully. And the companies seem to do that well, but a lot of companies seem to try and do that and for some reason fail.
2: Yeah, I think part of it is, and this doesn't sound negative, it's just the reality the amount of runway you've got to give yourself, and it's picking up on Richard's question about how long is it where, if the runway needs to be long, you've got to plan for that. The whole sales cycle, very painful and lengthy. Again, there's a lot of skepticism, fear, it's regarded as risky, etc. You've just got to accept that and be very realistic about all these things, So, how long it's going to take you to really scale up. The other thing is, it, it's the amount of homework you need to do and have a really good understanding of what systems or challenges, as it were, that whoever you're targeting has, when people don't do that homework, they have what might be a brilliant idea, but they don't just... Basically do the hard yards to our same systems people are using at the moment, where are the weaknesses in those? And how can I tell whatever I'm doing, rather than just go in and say, whatever you're using, rubbish, because mine's so much better. And also, an understanding of the risks coming back to that point, about adopting something new, and the concept blanket. People would often be, oh, God, the whole property industry runs off these steam-powered Excel spreadsheets, Would you what? Excel spreadsheets are pretty damn good and a lot of people don't know how to use them. So coming back to that adoption piece, you've got to respect. I'm not saying that everyone sticks to Excel, but you've got to accept that. Most people are very familiar. doesn't matter how clunky, whatever it is. And I often talk about the fact that I can't remember. I'm that old. When one day we walked into, it would have been my own employer, of offices on a Monday morning. And suddenly we were presented with the Microsoft Office Suites. Excel, PowerPoint, email systems, etc., and it was extraordinary how quickly we all, because we had to, go on top of it. But it's almost lost in the memory now. But the fact is, we now hang on to that—that that they are our comfort blankets. <laughs> so you've got to recognise all my stuff with whatever it is you're trying to promote.
0: From the agency perspective, with obviously Rebecca mentioned about regulation and things like that, which is probably a bit hot potato in state agency, I think. Phil Spencer was pushing it recently, and few others want some sort of exam like they have CMAP for mortgage advisors in order to either give people that whatever whatever an exam gives them. What's your take on regulation? And in theory, could that regulation then push the
2: change? I think there's an inevitability around this that uh, Richard, quite how long it'll take, I don't know, but it it is the joke that people just learn straight out into the industry no training effect. Obviously, in the financial world, it's got tougher pretty well every other market in the world. Let's take the States. In order to be a broker, you're going to take an exam, And I don't think anyone should be fearful of that. But there are other regulations going down right, in the whole KYC, anti-money laundering issues that are pushing towards that. And maybe these are some of the things that also will mean that the adoption of technology will be pushed because they can help the agency. We're just talking about the agency world me me that stuff better and more effectively. So
0: I was an agent to buy a commercial property for two years and absolutely loved it. Great time. Brilliant. And uh, we had to get up. I think it was really and license over there to, to be able to do it. And it, it was useful and you need some of that regulation in there and it is training as well and the same as cpd it all adds up and it all helps so over here assume it's fairly fast paced so you start your job get rid of training and then are expected to sell houses or flats or whatever i don't know i'm putting an assumption out there having been in sales wild and could be really good but for me i'm not going to say wild west but i like that it's quite free market in that you go out and It's almost reputation that puts you at that level and the work that you put into your business or with the consumer that puts you up there rather than trying to level everybody. I suppose you bring everybody up, but I like that little bit of competition that I think the FCA or whatever they're called now strangled a little bit out of the bit of innovation and a bit of things out of the financial services side. For me, I wouldn't want to see it go too far but having a sort of steady thing and if that's going to push not necessarily technology forward but good practice and the consumer more at the heart of it then yeah great and good luck to it
2: yeah i'd hate to think of the day when it was so straight that there was no scope for innovation and dynamism but actually i think that won't happen you're just talking pure estate agency good agent all those attributes a lot of it about interpersonal skills i think that's going to be knocked out of them by regulation.
0: Have you seen who's in government at the moment? Doing the wrong things for the wrong industries. Never say never,
2: Dominic. We'll see. I think uh, this current government have got more than to do whatever they might want to do.
1: Yes. Yeah, so back that business and away from politics, I would oh, nice. love to know from you, Dominic, what prop tech companies you're looking to at the moment as examples of people who are getting it right, examples of excellence, the ones who know how to grow and why.
2: Yeah. The answer is they would be relatively few. That's a sort of... Scary thing. There's still a lot of founder stage or let's say, aren't really making proper money stage. Within the longer prop tech world, we've obviously had the big portals So 10 years ago, went through lots of consolidation. And now we've ended up with two, three players in that space. And I think that similar evolution is going to take place. You look at how busy certain sectors are in prop tech terms rental market and other points we think you know what there are just too many players and one of the reasons that they're being held back is that the marketplace doesn't know which way to turn and what you're going to see is some of them are going to run out of runway and just wither on the vine others you might get season consolidation collaboration whatever and the success stories in some cases it might just be the ones that can survive they're not necessarily going to be the best ones it's a bit like the old vhs and yes. Beta Max was actually a better video system. So a lot of it is going to be about just resilience and the ability to pivot a bit. I know lots of people chat about that, but that's going to be so true. And I'm not going to cite you particular examples, but I've seen businesses where they've to really big pivots, almost their pitch deck is unrecognisable for what it might have been a couple of years ago and they're learning. So that's the other thing. You've got to keep learning and be able to flex a bit. Anyway. We shall see who the winners are.
1: You will indeed. You touched on a little bit there, pitch decks and investors and runways and things. Do you have any thoughts that you might like to share with us? Some wisdom, perhaps, on organic versus VC-led growth?
2: I'm going to claim to be a great expert on that, Rebecca. But if you can get to the right angel investors and a, the realistic business plan, like coming back to the amount of runway you need, be very realistic about or have a good understanding where you should be spending your money. That's pretty basic stuff. The VC money's gone a bit quiet lately, hasn't it? Not surprisingly, yeah. given what's going on out there. So I won't pretend I can give like you any huge insight on that what i would say is that it's great if you can get some angel investors who actually work in your sector because the ability for them to open doors and be a great champion because they've got a vested interest it is an obvious one to go for if you can other things i might say for uk founders is and i'm getting too techy but some of your audience will be familiar with the eis and scis private investor platforms that allow individuals to invest directly into startup businesses and have great tax breaks that are very favorable either if the business goes super well or indeed if it fails there are safety nets in place that means you don't lose all your money necessarily and i think if you can set your business up to be qualified for one of those that's great particularly helpful again coming back to my point about getting investors who are in your space so
0: on that and I think there's a really good mix, just thinking of a few different companies and founders that I've spoken to. Do you feel that it's better from your experience, it's better to have a co-founder or for one person to just do it themselves?
2: Yeah. I know a lot of people would opine that actually a co-founder is dangerous, having mean, all pivoting on one person and that there's just psychologically more of a team effort, as it were, and that you can have a bit of a yin and yang team. It helps, but again, I think there's no easy answer for that. I think if you're already a really good founder and you assemble a great team, then it would have to be co-founders with you. That's the important thing is to get the right team with the right complementary skills in place.
0: Yeah, makes sense. I think I've said before, and I think I wrote an article on it. I don't think anyone has ever read the article, but I did write an article on it. Of, if I went back, how I would set my company up differently, our biggest fault when i set up hooch was we didn't have a cto and we got one after about 18 months and in two weeks he completely changed everything made everything better we'd have saved ourselves again such an amount of runway that we probably could have scaled up ourselves which ultimately when it came down to it we just couldn't do and now i feel getting the right people you, know, you don't have to have it for every company and if not a co-founder make sure you got either a mentor or someone who looks after you, who knows the industry that you're going into, you, you may be in data, for example, but know that property and data obviously go hand in hand, you need that. So you need that person. Then you need someone who, a COO really, who understands sales and process, CMO sort of depending on how much airy-fairy marketing stuff you like, Rebecca. And then basically CEO, so someone who oversees everything. And I think that three, four people, are so key to it working properly and the businesses. So I'm looking at, I mentioned it on every podcast, but it's because I've seen so many businesses, companies, a company I'm doing some work with at moment called Inventory Base. Steve Rad heads them up and we've actually got him on another episode, but... He runs inventory base and then the other bits, property inspect and a couple of the other companies that he's running, just so commercially smart, clever. And it, obviously they've been over 10 years now, but they did websites to start with and then just got into this, but they have all the right people in the right places. And it, you can just tell they can start up a new business because those people are guiding then that business as well as this. It's just absolutely fantastic. And you don't see it in many places, especially in prop tech, but that sort of thing is where Again, he's a co-founder, but he's definitely right people, right place. And if that's a co-founder, great. If not, make sure you've got the right people around you.
2: I would say this, wouldn't we, Rich, the importance of getting some advice early on, from people you feel comfortable with, and there is now an emerging ecosystem of people like you and me who are out there who got a few miles under our wheels, as it were, and got a good understanding of how whichever uh, sector we've worked in works and can give some useful guidance to some of these startups.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. And thanks for the little dig, Rich, about the airy, fairy marketing stuff. I didn't miss that. Obviously. In order to get you back for it, I'm not going to name names because I don't do that on the podcast. But a prop tech business I worked with a mid tier marketing manager because they needed marketing done. And it didn't work out because that person didn't have a founder mindset, they didn't have the strategic and commercial mindset. And They very much needed me to come in and sort that out. And within a week, the co-founders of the business were coming back to me and saying, oh my gosh, we really should have gotten you in 18 months ago. Because ultimately, they had somebody who knew how to speak to investors and to a certain degree, one-to-one with customers. They had someone who was great at tech, but they didn't have anyone who knew how to scale and how to get the messaging working to scale. And pulling together a marketing strategy or even just at a very high level, a growth strategy for a prop tech business, I don't think that you can just wing it or get somebody in to do a few bits or polish up your website. I think you really need, whether it's a portable prop tech CMO, whether it's somebody who is just a great business strategist, somebody who's a great COO, someone who's got an operational headset on. You just really need somebody who can come in and look at the big picture and build a growth strategy that's going to get you in front of the right people with the right message because otherwise you're just stealthing and <laughs> burning that runway so quickly. It's like you said, Dominic, before you know it, it's been 18 months and nothing's closed yet and you don't know why.
0: You Dominic, know? with your consultancy business, obviously you're 18 months into that now. What was your plan? And with that, how's it
2: going what have we found? Thanks for asking, Rich. So far, so good. And practicing what I preach, I am pivoting and flexing to reflect what's going on out there. It's very apparent that getting someone like me, I'm not the only one out there, and I'm not the Oracle guru on every single sector. But there are, if one asks the right questions, people out there, let's say, like me, have a very good understanding of the way the market works, my market, residential, development, investment. It's very apparent that understanding how you navigate you being a new business, wanting to sell into the old world, as I call it, put a foot in both the old and the new camps. But of course, the big, extraordinary thing is that the new world is selling exclusively into the old world. You can't bypass the industry. You right now, effectively, unless you go for a really big play, do what, say, Elon Musk did with Tesla, which was just ignore forward general Motors, Toyota, and just directly market you completely go B to C with a new product. Unless somebody wants to make a huge play, effectively right now, you've got to sell it the equivalent to the forwards and GMs of the world. And therefore, getting in front of people and have them help you as to how you navigate your way around the old world is essential. You've got to do it.
0: And we touched on VCs earlier, but Things like accelerators and things like that. It sounds a little bit like what you're doing, but not in a set way with regards to giving them a small funding as such. But you're using your network to get them in front of the right people, and then it's almost up to them to be able to sell. Is that sort of what you're saying you do?
2: Yes. And in fact, all the accelerators don't sell on behalf of, they again can open doors, and there's some great accelerators out there. There's some others. Again, I'm not going to mention names that. Promise a lot, but don't deliver and take a large pound of flesh for the pleasure. But yeah, it's a similar model, isn't it? Where they're saying, we can open the doors for you. Fine, that's established. Uh, I still think there's lots of scope, though. To get quite specialist knowledge you need, depending on what you're trying to do with what technology, to make sure you need to find you've got someone that really can help shape your product. And we talked earlier a little about pitch decks and things. It's really basic stuff, but just to get your pitch deck in front of someone it can be quite a good what i describe myself as a crash test dummy is really useful i believe it and certainly those businesses that i'm helping find it so where i adopt every man persona right i've been sort of typical person in the industry pitch to me and i will role play that i'm going to understand what pushbacks might be what the awkward questions might be etc and the other thing is very apparent is to that, of course, those that are out looking for money, there's a different deck, your shared slide to investors, and I'm getting better at understanding some of the questions that
1: they may ask as well. You're putting on the different hats of the various stakeholders that these people are going to need to approach, and giving them someone to vet their presentations and their messaging against.
2: Yeah, and these may be as, as simple as it, making sure that the spelling is right. It may sound a bit trite to mention that, but... A lot of decks with dreadful spelling, and I'll tell you what—they were pitchy to me. I'd have a very low pain threshold for that.
1: Yeah, the first thing I'll pull anyone up on on a deck is spelling, grammar, and punctuation because it just sticks out like a sore thumb. And proofing isn't that difficult. There'll be someone in any business who can proof things for you. You just need to identify them
0: for sure Dominic I know a little bit about you as m- most people do in this industry how did it all start how did you get into Savills where did you start how did you
2: work your way up the long and winding road I didn't go to university actually I suppose I could have done back then you could get through in the clearing with some pretty rubbish A levels which is basically what I had but I didn't know what to read really. so I just merged out into the world and how I ended up becoming initially a the state agent actually was before I worked for Savills I worked for a little folk called Friend and Falk in but It was very random, Rich. How i a 20 year old just rocked up, had an interview. There was a little like tombstone advertisement, especially in the Times. That a friend of mine spotted and I went along for his interview and walked out of the door Thursday. It started the following Monday, absolutely clueless. But you know what? I found myself in that office and I learned on the job, as it were. Very lucky they moved me up to their Knightsbridge office a couple of years later. Worked hard, was spotted by Savills, who were looking for someone to join their team. Again, very lucky, joined Savills in 1984. Lucky break again, just at a time when Savills really going for it, shrugging off some of that Royal D-Trek suit that they were wearing at day. I'm very lucky to work under an amazing woman called Victoria Mitchell, who was a great visionary, incredibly hardworking and very inspirational. As I joined Savills in eighty doing second-hand state agency work, then I opened their office in the Docklands in nineteen eighty-six, and of course you can imagine that threw me headlong into residential development work because it then it still is down there all about development, and thank goodness actually this is all very unplanned, by the way. But now I recognise how lucky I was because I. Loved every second of working in the residential development business. I learned it all on the tools, as it were, over that time. And anyway, long story short, I ended up years later running. It was already kicking on a small team that started then doing residential development work. And we grew a great team. Still a great team. The market leaders in London now that course, lots of businesses across the country now. A very strong player in the whole residential development and investment space. So it was a good ride. Right? Thoroughly enjoyed it. Again, I don't know the
0: answer to this. If it's bad, then you don't need to answer. But what made you want to leave?
2: Okay, very valid question, enough. particularly after what I just said. Why would you leave? Do you know what, Rich? This sort of time had come, brilliant team under me, and witnessed people sort of hang around for too long. I talked to him about comfort blankets, working for a phenomenal business myself. Right and it's not the Southall's way to allow people to snuggle down in comfy chairs. It's not the way business works that were particularly relevant to our conversation now, stuff I wanted to do in the sort of innovation and technology space that I couldn't do where a a head of London residential development hat. That was my role. That's the team I headed. So it would have been disingenuous to me to launch that uh, on other people's time, as it were. When I looked around, actually... I'm honest with you, the COVID lockdown helped me make this decision. Seemed like quite a seminal moment it was for all of us, wasn't it? And I just thought, you know what, if you're going to do this, do it now. And I'll have absolutely no regrets. And I've still got lots of mates at Savills. Super good lever, etc. So, yeah, it's all good. I was going to make a retirement joke, but... Perish, I thought, like, it's fair enough. I like, know I definitely am old enough to have retired, but I'm not retiring. And I'm not a retiring type, Is you make it.
1: Rich, what well, all on the wind-up? You are going to turn our guests against us. you got to be careful.
0: Yeah, no, I'm a bad advert for myself, really.
1: Did you go to university, Rich?
0: Yes, yeah, I did. I uh, did the politics and international relations at Leicester.
1: Um, as I was thinking, was I didn't go to uni. I, I went for a little while. It didn't agree with me. And when I first moved to London, I pretty much never ended up in a meeting with people who hadn't been to uni and had got their masters and were so impressive and so educated and made me feel this big when I'm at least this big. And yeah, I was quite surprised when I spoke to Dominic and he said that he hadn't been to university. I was like, well, oh, somebody else who knows what it's like to just learn on the job?
2: When I left school, it was, I think my sort of peer group, probably at least 25% of us didn't go to uni. It was less expected than perhaps it is today. And make no mistake, I've had three kids, all of whom have been to uni. I think it's great. But you could sort of get away with it a bit more easily back then, not going to uni. The other thing I'd say, actually, and this isn't having a snipe, but those that go through the RICS accredited courses at things like Brooks and Reading. But as anyone who knows me will know, I feel very strongly that those courses need a major kick up the backside to bring them into a cynic might say the 20th century, but it certainly bring them up to date. A lot of the course content is deeply rooted <laughs> in the 1950s, and ironically, given our conversation now, hardly embraces at all any technology. And it's crazy that they're spitting out graduates or postgrad. People who aren't tuned into a lot of those techie opportunities out there. Anyway, end of rant on
0: that. <laughs> we'll just add, I obviously follow politics, but I don't remember anything from when I was there with regards to education. Nothing that I did at university apart from socialise has helped me in my career. I finished university and then got a job as a mortgage advisor, which obviously complete. Polar opposites of what I've been studying so to get into a job in London they like in theory for you to have a degree or you've got to have worked your way up from when you were 16 onwards was the sort of feeling I always got but no I would have quite happily just started working at 16 I think but pushed into it on the education system at that point yeah
1: great there was just one more thing I wanted to ask you about Dominic we're seeing a lot of Volatile market conditions at the moment, as you mentioned earlier. What do you think prop tech companies need to do in order to survive those conditions?
2: Be very aware of the challenges that your prospective clients are facing. Very clear about the value add, the proposition that you've got that can alleviate those problems. And it is going to be this awful sort of push and pull between people, as I mentioned earlier, battling down the hatch, not spending money on anything new. And of course, the real estate world is renowned for spending very little long on R&D at the best of times. It's going to be the first budget cut now, isn't it? So you've got to be super realistic about that and very clear about, as I said, yeah, i repeating myself correctly, right? how what you do can help then get through this short-term issues as well as the long-term
1: ones great do you have anything that you wanted to add or ask rich
2: no i think we've pretty much covered it i think
0: there's a lot to take in over this time that we do in and it's really interesting listening to people's experiences and how they've got to where they've got to and obviously what they're doing now it's quite clear to me that i am probably a better consultant than dominic We heard it here first but uh, no it's been an absolute pleasure
2: dominic to have you on yeah. and, uh, thank you guys pleasure's all mine and best of luck out there guys and look forward to seeing you out of the boat. yeah definitely so-
1: thanks again dominic thanks
0: for joining us on the PropTech growth podcast to learn more you can find us on linkedin or email prop at icloud.com see you next time